Today is March 14th, 2021, and the topic of this Dharma talk is trusting the practice. For anyone who has done a sashin or two, I'm guessing these words might ring a bell. Trust the practice. Some of us, myself included, have heard it dozens, seemingly hundreds of times. Why does it bear repeating? To place trust in our practice is, of course, a matter of faith. Faith in our Buddha nature, faith in the fact that each and every one of us is endowed with it, with no exceptions, but also faith in Zazen itself, faith in this method of sitting still, working on a breath or koan practice, faith that it's what we need to do, doing it for its own sake, not, not to get out of the conditions that we're in, From my experience with practice, especially in my earlier years, I remember questioning whether I had such faith. I was dogged by self-doubt. Yeah, when I, when I recited the four vows, all beings without number, I vow to liberate, there was a little voice inside my head that said it was all beings except for me. I was also afflicted by guilt. It's my fault that I'm not getting anywhere in practice. I'm not working hard enough. Wallowing in feelings of inadequacy, feeling sorry for myself. What a loser. So sometimes when I would hear Roshi or the monitor say, trust the practice, Instead of taking this advice to heart and just pouring myself into questioning my koan, mu, I questioned my faith. Do I really have faith? How do I know if I have it? What if I don't? Then surely I'm not going to get anywhere. Yeah, I was just mired in this muck of thoughts. That included making faith into this abstract thing outside myself treating it like, you know, some kind of measure stick of my effort, rather, rather than just doing the practice, just the questioning. What is Mu? Keeping it simple. In Buddhism, self-doubt is also referred to as skeptical doubt. It's, it's one of the five hindrances that we may encounter in practice. And the other hindrances are desire, aversion, sloth, and restlessness. Each of these hindrances take the form of thoughts or emotional states. And they're fueled by our social conditioning, entrenched habit forces that are at work on us. And this includes our, our lifetime of experiences, our family upbringing, education, relationships, and so on. But also habit forces that are, are passed down from generation to generation. Skeptical doubt can also arise at critical junctures in our lives, periods of indecision. It's, it's just part of the, the experience of being human. Asking ourselves, what should I do with my life? Should I do this or that? 
Should I go back to school? Should I start dating again? Should I stay single, get married, have children? Should I move to a new place, get a new job? Do I have what it takes? And, you know, during the course of this pandemic, now we're officially a year into it, a lot of people have probably spent some time rethinking and reassessing their lives. Some have been compelled to do so because they lost their job, being laid off, losing a loved one, or the ending of a relationship. What next? <laughs> it wasn't too long ago that I found myself racked with skepticism about uh, my career as a college professor and administrator. I was in academia for over 20 years. It was a big commitment. Getting a PhD, publications, tenure, promotions. But eventually I came to ask myself, what, what am I doing? What is this all for? Is this really how I want to continue to spend my days? Am I really helping anyone? And, you know, at that point I had long been a Zen Center trainee wannabe. I, I yearned really to be part of the residential training program, but I was afraid to let go of everything I'd worked so hard for. I was on this trajectory, and, and walking away from that seemed very risky. But at the same time, remaining there in my academic post felt like I wasn't being honest with myself. Should I take the leap? Yes! <laughs> and I haven't had a single regret. That's my uh, shameless plug for the training program. But really, you know, whatever the hindrances, whatever the hindrances are that we experience, and we all we all have them. Um, they can actually be quite subtle at times. Uh, we might not even notice that, that they're there. Could be some vague feeling of unworthiness, indecisiveness, unease. And sooner or later, though, in the, in the process of, of doing zazen, we're going to notice them, and it's going to, it could possibly be very sobering and, and painful to see how often they appear. And, and not just noticing the habitual nature of them, but also their, their intensity. In the case of self-doubt, it can, it can easily turn into a kind of doom loop where you get bogged down in self-judgments. Then you feel guilty for wasting so much time being far removed from your practice. And then back to the judgments. And, you know, at times it can feel like we're just thrashing about in, in our reactions to our thoughts and feelings. But we need to remember the fact that the fact that we have such thoughts isn't the problem. Thoughts are just thoughts. It doesn't matter the content of them. All thoughts are equally thoughts, and we cannot not have them. It's what our brain is, is hardwired to do. They only become a hindrance when we cling to them, take them you know, at, at face value, as if, as if they have any substance. And, and in that regard, when it comes to daily practice, this uh, skeptical doubt is probably the most challenging of the five hindrances. We, we can get to the point where, where we ask, why am I even doing this? Why even bother sitting? Why bother going to Sashin? 
you know, it can really, really undermine our motivation to practice all together. And in turn, we, we lose touch with our faith. But, you know, we need to distinguish between small doubt or skeptical doubt and, and what is called big doubt. While skeptical doubt can be at odds with faith, big doubt is something altogether different. Big doubt co-arises with faith. They go hand in hand. This applies not only to Zen practice, but arguably to most, if not all, spiritual traditions. You know, and anyone who is seriously working on themselves at one point or another is going to be confronted with doubt. The poet Khalil Gibran once said, Doubt is a pain too lonely to know that faith is his twin brother. In order for us to come to practice in the first place, there's got to be some degree of faith and doubt there, at least that we're aware of, some inkling that there's something beyond the suffering or unsatisfactoriness of our life. Some, something that drives us to sign up for the workshop and, and give, give Zazen a try. In, in, the three in the Three Pillars of Zen, where Roshi Kaplo presents Yasutani Roshi's introductory lectures, doubt, that is big doubt, is explained as one of the three essentials of Zen practice, the other two being faith and determination. And here's what Yasutani Roshi says. It's not a simple doubt, mind you, but a doubt mass. And this inevitably stems from strong faith. It is doubt as to why we and the world should appear so imperfect, so full of anxiety, strife, and suffering, when in fact our deep faith tells us exactly the opposite is true. In other words, you know, if the world is indeed perfect just as it is, if we're already whole and complete, then why do we experience so much pain and suffering in our lives? Why is there so much greed, anger, and delusion? Yeah, so this, this kind of doubt clearly isn't skeptical or small doubt. It's, it's, it's a deep questioning that is activated by our faith, and it leaves us determined to resolve it. I'm now going to turn to reading and, and commenting on excerpts from a book titled the Faith to Doubt, Glimpses of Buddhist Uncertainty. It's by Stephen Batchelor, and it was first published in 1990. I believe um, it has more recently been uh, reprinted and republished, but I I'm relying on the, the first edition. Uh, Stephen Batchelor is a British author who back in the 70s and early 80s, was an ordained monk. And actually, in the process of preparing for this talk, um, I, I learned that he was one of the, the speakers at the Zen Center's 30th anniversary symposium on the theme of American Buddhism today. That was, that was back in 1996. 
his his book, The Faith to Doubt, is is kind of a part memoir, part reflection on Buddhism and, and Zen practice. And, and in it, he describes his, his personal struggles with practice, first in the Tibetan tradition, and then after going through a, a kind of spiritual crisis, um, he was drawn to Zen. And on the back cover, he defines faith and doubt as follows. Faith is not an unquestioning belief in something, but the resolve to question whatever presents itself. Doubt is not mere indecision, but the very uncertainty about what it is that reads these words. So then faith can't be compared to believing in something like, say, democracy or freedom, but, but it transcends those kinds of beliefs. It's a resolve to question everything. Where, where do those beliefs even come from? And then, you know, as for doubt, who is it that gets up in the morning? Who brushes her teeth? I'm now going to cherry pick selected excerpts from his book, focusing mainly on how he describes the co-arising of faith and doubt in practice. And I'm, I'm going to completely skip over any material about his, his personal path. And with that said, I'll jump right to chapter four, which is titled Questioning. He begins by describing two different kinds of questioning, which he calls calculative and meditative. About calculative questioning, he writes, It is that which solves problems which occur in everyday life. If something fails to work in the way we expect it to, we ask ourselves why and begin to search for the causes and reasons for the failure. We are usually confident that an answer lies within reach. It's just a matter of figuring it out. Such questioning leads along a calculated path. We eliminate certain choices through trial and error or by simple deduction. With each step, we calculate our next move until finally the problem is solved and our curiosity is replaced with the satisfaction of knowing. So uh, an example of using this calculative mind might be trying to figure out how to fix a computer problem you know, many of us are relying on audio video technology these days to stay in touch and we're bound to run into problems. I know I do. Uh, what's wrong with my audio? Am I muted? No. Is it the Wi-Fi? No. I got four bars. Is it an issue with the, the settings? Yes, that's it. Right? And it, it feels good to fix things. We might, might even feel a bit of pride in our accomplishment. I, for one, when I manage to fix a computer-related problem, it's a downright miracle. Bachelor goes on to describe how this calculated approach to questioning functions as not just a method, but an attitude, one where we feel compelled to try to perfect the problem-solving process, getting from A to B in the most efficient way. 
He says, the calculative attitude, quote, tends to be manipulative. It treats life as though it were composed of a virtually infinite number of separate parts. This attitude not only operates in the material realm, it affects our vision of other people and even ourselves. It fragments and divides. It turns living creatures into things, separate units capable of being dissected and accumulated, of being rejected and attained. All right, so, so let's imagine approaching practice in a calculated way. What, what, what would that look like? If we're working on a breath practice in a, in a calculated way, we'd, we'd be focused on an outcome, perhaps mastering the count, getting from one to 10 without missing a beat, you know, fixated on, on getting it right, rather than just becoming one with the counting. Just one. Just two, no concerns about losing track. And likewise, in the case of working on our first koan, mu or hu, perhaps, we'd also be looking for results, for kensho, expending our energy on evaluating how well we're doing along the way. With this calculative approach, our practice just ends up being directed towards some future goal, something or some place outside of ourselves, outside of this moment. And, and because this calculated attitude is very much a, a product of our social conditioning, each one of us is confronted with it. It's, it's simply part of the terrain of practice. And, and it's hard not to expect results. Let's face it, who wouldn't want Kensho? But, but we need to find a way to not pay attention to those thoughts. Again, the problem isn't that we have them, it's that we give in to them, rather, rather than just letting them pass. You know, and, and it's also interesting to consider the calculative or uh, manipulative attitude as it can filter into our, our relationships, our, our interactions with others. Perhaps trying to get something from a friend or a coworker, get them to do something for us, some task that we don't want to do ourselves or maybe trying to control a conversation or a narrative to our liking because it makes us feel good about ourselves. When, you know, when we do this, we're only creating separation, just as we are when we attempt to think our way through our practice. And, you know, that said, of course, we do need to use our analytical mind to go about our day-to-day -day lives. We do need to be able to solve problems and collaborate with others. But do we need to use it when we're sitting or when we're practicing off the mat, for that matter, engaging in uh, simple activities? There, there's this quote that comes to mind for me by, by Audrey Lorde. She was a poet and activist who um, devoted her life to confronting the injustices of discrimination, especially racism and sexism. And in, in the context of, of theorizing how to bring about genuine social change, she once wrote, and this is a very famous quote, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. 
Her point was that you can't bring about equality and justice using the tools of, you know, divide and conquer, the very same tools that are used to oppress people. And we could say the same thing about going beyond duality, which thrives on thoughts. We can't use thoughts to go beyond thoughts. What we need is a different way of questioning. And this is what Bachelor calls meditative questioning. And here he begins by describing how meditation can easily be misunderstood. He says, meditation is widely perceived as a kind of specialized activity. It is regarded as a means of calming the concentrating mind, as a panacea for anxiety, agitation, and tension. Symptomatic of the prevailing obsession with calculation. It is considered as a technique. Of course, yeah, a technique is aimed at results. And, you know, this is kind of what we see with the, the mindfulness, <clears throat> the mindfulness movement that has taken off uh, using meditation as a tool to, to achieve some specific purpose, like to become more relaxed, more focused. And, and it's kind of interesting to see that this trend was apparent back, back in the early 90s. All right, Bachelor continues. But although guidelines can be given, ultimately there is no how to meditation, and a, med and a meditative attitude is not something we can acquire. It is nothing new or alien. It dwells deeply within us all. It is already present in an embryonic and sporadic way. It may come to us unexpectedly in glimmers and hints. It is vaguely recognized as a distant barely known possibility which may nag at us like fragments of a dream that refuse to leave us alone. He says, we need to recognize this fragile attitude and then care for it and nurture it as we would a child or a seedling. Yeah, so in other words, we don't need to worry about whether or not we have faith or doubt for that matter. It's there from the very beginning. And practicing Zazen earnestly is, is what will uncover it. And, you know, it's invariably going to ebb and flow. There's no need to analyze it. Faith just takes care of itself when we nurture it and put our trust in Zazen. And, and when when Bachelor talks about there being no how to meditation, he's also saying that we need to find our own way. A teacher can give us guidance, but ultimately we need to do the work on our own. When I was uh, thinking about this point, about, about faith and doubt lying within us, whether we realize it or not, um, I, I was reminded of a, another quote, um, this one by a novelist, uh, Edith Wharton. Uh, she once said, There are two ways of spreading light, to be the candle or the mirror that reflects it. So, you know, our faith can be fueled by our own trust in our true nature, that we too can awaken to it. But it can also be driven by our actions simply by reflecting faith, being faith, even when we don't feel it in our bones. You know, and, and an example of that would be sitting, even when we don't want to, uh, doing prostrations, chanting, even if it feels strange at first, uh, or doing a term intensive where, you know, we make some big commitments 
perhaps with some trepidation, but then it's through our actions, through our effort, effort that our faith gets sparked. It's in the doing. Bachelor then goes on to describe how meditative questioning, unlike calculative, is a matter of working with a mystery. He says, Calculation can solve our problems, but it is helpless in penetrating our mysteries. The mysterious lies at the heart of our lives not at the periphery, and its presence is only felt to the extent that a meditative attitude still lives within us. Unlike a problem, a mystery can never be solved. A mystery can only be penetrated. A problem, once solved, ceases to be a problem, but the penetration of a mystery does not make it any less mysterious. This is an important distinction. Solving a problem versus penetrating a mystery. Who am I? Why am I here? What is Mu? What is this? You know, if we, if we try to answer these questions with our thinking mind, we're only going to get dull, uh, unsatisfactory answers. But to penetrate these questions is entirely different. We, we recite in the Four Vows, Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate. Penetrate is to see into, to, to experience the mystery, to emerge with it. And in reading this book, you know, it kind of helps me to understand and appreciate even more how doubt in Zen is so very different from how it's often treated in Judeo-Christian religions, where where doubt can be viewed as uh, something that needs to be overcome in order to return to faith. They're seen as separate. Um, doubts associated with straying away from one's path. <laughs> as a child, I was raised as Catholic, and I actually still remember how the nuns who taught after-school classes were, were so strident any time a kid said anything to question the stories in the Bible. <laughs> but but Zen, but in, in, in Zen, doubt doubt is the practice. Doubt doubt is to have this mind of wonder. Bachelor goes on to say how our work in penetrating a mystery unfolds continuously over time through ongoing, ongoing practice. It's not a one-shot deal. Here, here he writes, the, the practice of meditation is a process of attrition. The mind has a seemingly infinite capacity for chatter. Yeah, don't I know it? And there is no instant or easy cure for this proliferation of thoughts and emotions. Only the patient continuity of meditation, what the Chinese master Su Yun called a long, enduring mind, can finally wear it down. This process is echoed in Lao Tzu's words. What is of all things most yielding can overwhelm that which is of all things most hard. The patient, unhurried, 
yet continuous flow of water can wear down even the most resistant and stubborn rock. Yeah, patient, unhurried, continuous. And that's simply returning our attention to the practice. Each time we notice that we've wandered into thoughts. And, and this process of wearing away doesn't happen on a timetable. Certainly not on our own and not fast enough. To trust the practice is to just put our trust sheerly in the doing of it. Next, he gets into more detail on this problem of expecting results from our practice. He says, expectation draws its nourishment from the past. Out of all our recollections, it pieces together an image of what is desired and then projects it into the future as an anticipated goal. It is fatal in meditation to entertain expectations. As soon as we fix in our mind a picture of what it is we seek to attain, we restrict ourselves to the boundaries of the known. Not the mystery, but the known. The only notions we will ever be capable of producing will be drawn from the pool of impressions, ideas, symbols, and experiences we have stored in our memory. In other words, we, we just become trapped in thoughts and, and separated from the mystery, the, the pure questioning in this moment. And he, he also offers this warning. He says, one of the greatest dangers of all lies in the recollection of our own experiences of meditation it's, it is not so unusual while meditating to awaken to something extraordinary and unprecedented. But the more unusual and, and mystical the experience, the greater will be the danger. For we will be tempted, once the immediate experience has faded, to place an image of it before us and then strive to recapture it. Yes. If you sit enough, uh, especially doing sashins, there's a good chance you're going to encounter this. You have, you know, what you label to be a good sitting or a strong sashin. Maybe it was just, um, you know, this experience where you were left feeling some lightness that you hadn't experienced before or uh, a fleeting glimpse of going beyond thoughts. And then you cling to the expectation that it's going to happen again the next time. And of course, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Why can't I get back there? You know, back to that feeling of freedom. Why didn't it happen again? What's wrong with me? And you can't get back to it. That, that moment is long gone. You know, and, and here's another example um, how we might make Sashin itself into a monolithic thing. I used to do this. Uh, we might find ourselves, you know, kind of slacking off on our daily practice, not taking it seriously, putting the effort in on and off the mat. But then when Sashin comes along, well, then you're going to get serious. Then you're going to throw yourself into it. We might even, during Sashin, plot out our Yaza game. 
And when we create this duality between being in and being out of Sashin, we're in that calculative mindset. We, we're telling ourselves that Sashin is a big deal and everyday practice, meh, you know, kind of boring. Just can't fall for that trap. When, when we treat practice as continuous, as never having an end point or a goal, our relationship to it totally changes. Sashin just becomes an extension of daily practice. And if we're doing the work every day, our practice in Sashin is all the more fortified from it. You know, that said, we all have to find the right balance when it comes to integrating practice in our daily lives. We've got family, relationships, work responsibilities. Um, we've got to carve out time to sit. But there are also moments off the mat throughout the day when we can be wor working on our practice. When we're, you know, walking up and down the stairs or doing the laundry. So many opportunities. All right, I'm now going to jump uh, to chapter six, where Bachelor gets more into uh, the pitfalls of practicing with expectations. And the title of this chapter is Unpredictable Moments. He begins, Imagine lying on a hilltop. You are gazing at the overcast sky waiting for clouds to thin out or break apart. They are gray, but slowly and quietly moving. There is nothing you can do to make them separate. No matter what mind state you are in, the clouds will open at their own time and the sun will shine through. Does personal effort play no role at all? The more prepared and weightful you are, the more you will be able to benefit from the breaking of the opening clouds. So effort is the perseverance to wait and perseverance in waiting is patience. If you are impatient, you will become distracted, insensitive to what might happen at any moment. Then the moment will pass you by. The break in the clouds will go unnoticed they will close again as silently and inconspicuously as they opened. The more prepared and weightful you are. So what's he saying? It's not like standing at a bus stop waiting for the bus to arrive on schedule, looking down the road for it. When's it gonna appear? You know, anticipating getting on board. You know, expecting that bus to arrive is not going to make it come any sooner. Bachelor says, quote, Waiting waits. It is alert to every moment, but has no expectations. Yeah, expectations involve thoughts, ideas about the future. While, while waiting is totally open-ended, open just looking, without, without looking for anything, pure attention. Bachelor goes on to describe uh, the unpredictable nature of our waiting. He says, you cannot approach it with any certainty. All your longing and striving to realize something, to attain some insight, are essentially futile. You cannot even speak of progress, for progress implies that you're getting close to the goal. But you cannot get any closer than you already are. Certainty, longing, striving, progress, all of these are meaningful only in the realm of techniques. In other words, problem solving.
there, there's a koan in the Mumonkan that speaks to how our expectations, our, our result-seeking mind um, gets in the way of, of true questioning. It's case 19, ordinary mind is the way. And it's an exchange between Joshu and Nansen. I'm not going to get into any background information or detail about it. I'm just going to read the exchange and the commentary because um, they kind of speak for themselves. Joshu asked Nansen, what is the way? Nansen answered, ordinary mind is the way. Joshu asked, shall I try to seek after it? If you try to seek after it, you go away from it, answered Nansen. Joshu then asked, if I do not try for it, how can I know the way? And Nansen replied, the way is not a matter of knowing or not knowing. Knowing is illusion. Not knowing is blankness. If you attain this way of no doubt, it is as boundless as vast space. So how can there be right or wrong in the way? And at these words, Joshu was suddenly enlightened. So we can see that Joshu's questions suggested that he was questioning in a, in a formulaic way, wanting to make sure he had the right technique. Should I try to seek after it? If I don't seek after it, how am I ever going to find it? But then Nansen uh, redirects his attention to the great doubt that was lying there all along beneath those questions. And Mumon's commentary on this case also resonates with what we were talking about earlier regarding uh, the, the wearing away effect of continuous practice. And here's the commentary. Questioned by Joshu, Nansen, like melting ice and disintegrating tile, dissolved and could not offer a plausible explanation. Even though Joshu has come to realization, he must delve into it another 30 years before he can understand it fully. The mystery remains. And, and to have experienced enlightenment upon hearing Nansen's words, Joshu must have had been prepared, waitful for that moment. He must have been persistent in his practice. Beneath all of those formulaic questions, about technique, beneath that was this pure faith. And then all of a sudden, boom. This reminds me of an incident that actually happened at Chapin Mill a few days ago, and this is by, by way of analogy. Over the course of the winter, a lot of snow had accumulated on the metal roof of the Clava House. There had to have been at least eight inches of packed snow up there. And this past week, we had a couple of warm, sunny days in a row. It was in the 60s. And so naturally, that metal roof started to heat up and the snow began to melt. And at first, the only thing that was noticeable was some dripping water. You know, looking at the roof, it was still completely covered in snow. And then a couple days later, all of a sudden, a single massive sheet of snow comes crashing down in an avalanche. I jumped <laughs> when it happened because it was just so loud. The whole house shook. And in a flash, the roof was totally bare. But in order for that to happen, that snow had to have been continuously melting, turning to water little by little, little by little, before it all gave away. Again, 
to penetrate a mystery, we have to be continuous in our efforts, waiting in this not knowing. All right, um, we're getting close to the end, and um, I want to finish by sharing a poem that I learned of when, when my husband and I Tom and I were on a um, hiking trip a few years ago. We were visiting various national parks in the Southwest and Pacific Northwest. And when we were at Yosemite, we attended an evening program led by a forest, forest ranger. And um, he recited this poem. And it was just so moving, and, and it still sticks with me. The poem is titled Lost, and it's by David Wagner. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers, I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. We'll stop there and recite the four vows.